Scripture today is Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Morning. How many of you could not find your normal chair this morning? We changed things up, huh? I think that's an apt analogy to what we as Christians are experiencing in the world today. It seems like we got up one day and we went to sit in our normal chair and it was gone. The world's changed very rapidly and become more and more hostile to our Christian faith. The values of our world have changed very rapidly in the last 30, 40, 50 years. It used to be the values that were most highly esteemed were values like honesty and moral uprightness, truthfulness, those kinds of things. But it seems that today, the greatest value in our culture is tolerance. Tolerance being the idea that we need to consider what someone else does or believes as right and good and affirm it without question. So the greatest sin in our culture then is intolerance. That is to consider what someone else does or believes as wrong. That is being a hater in our culture. And it's considered immoral to many people in our world today to be intolerant. But this immediately puts us as Christians at odds with our world, doesn't it? Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. There is no other way to be whole as a human being, no matter who you are. And that is an exclusive claim that to our world is intolerant. So we are immediately put at odds with the values of this world. 
So how should we respond then as believers in an environment, in a world that is increasingly becoming hostile to our Christian faith? Well, that's a tough question. I I think we all need to be wrestling with that and continue to wrestle with that. What it means to live as believers and be people of integrity, people of faith in a hostile world. But I want to highlight, I think, four common responses among Christians that I think are not particularly helpful. One response is protest. This is the idea that we as believers need to cry out our resistance, our frustration at the changes that are happening in our culture. We need to point fingers, blame people. We need to make sure the world knows that we Christians aren't happy with what's going on. We need to make sure we refuse to support what's going on in the world and perhaps refuse to bake cakes or sell flowers or sell insurance to gays because we're against it. And we need people to know. That's a common response among Christians today. Another common response is to fight. To have the sense that Wait a minute, the culture wars are happening and we need to fight against it. We need to gather together and seek legislation to reverse the moral decline in our culture. We need to join forces and exert power as a political force to stop what's going on in our culture. We need to join together in massive prayer rallies and to pray that God would work to win back our nation for Him and save America for our children. We need to fight. A third common response among Christians is to isolate. This is the attitude that, wow, the world is a mess. It's going to hell in a handbasket. And so we need to hunker down in our Christian communities and make sure we stay safe and protect our kids and protect ourselves from the awful things going out in the world. And just wait for Jesus to return and for all this to burn. Let's make sure we stay safe between our, behind our Christian walls so the world can't get to us. A fourth common response that's increasing, I think, and we struggle with this, especially, I think, the younger generation, is that if God's a God of love, then maybe we need to embrace what's going on in the world. Maybe we need to see the Bible as mainly cultural and it's outdated and that we need to embrace the changes so that we embrace gay marriage, etc., etc., because we are to be people who love. Well, as I said, I don't think any of these responses are particularly helpful for the kingdom of God, ultimately. It's interesting as you look at Jesus and the disciples and how they viewed themselves and how Jesus describes us as people living in a hostile world, Jesus uses a word that the disciples picked up on that I think is very important. It's a word that not many of us understand very well, but it puts us on a different path than any of these other responses. And I believe it's what we're called to be. And this word is witness. Witness. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples as he's about to ascend and leave them behind. He says this in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
You see, we're called to be witnesses in this world for Jesus. But what does that mean? Well, I think in our passage today, we find a lot of help to understand that we're not just called to be witnesses for Jesus, but we are called to be witnesses like Jesus. And that's very different, I think, than most of us tend to think when we hear the word witness. Pray with me. Lord, in your wisdom and your plan, you have left us here as believers in a hostile world. Yes, we look forward to you coming again and setting all things right. But in the meantime, you've called us to a particular place and a particular time to live out our faith. And it's clear that you've called us to be first and foremost witnesses to the world. But Lord, I think we often misunderstand that. May you today use your word to clarify our thinking and help us understand how we are to respond to a world gone awry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, as you've heard, Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. But Mark has written this passage in such a way that I believe his purpose is to show the disciples and us as his followers what it means to be witnesses in the world. The Greek word for witness, which is martus, where we get our word martyr, martus, witness, testimony, testify. Those are all translations of that word. Occurs seven times in this short passage in different combinations. I think Mark is saying this, as Jesus faces hostility, you will too. So learn from how Jesus responds so you can be witnesses like Jesus. Now, I think the way of Jesus is in contrast to the way of the world that's shown by the Sanhedrin. Note how the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the people who ought to be pointing people to God, who ought to be leading him to trust, leading the people to trust him. They don't really represent God here in this passage. They actually represent the way of the world, the kingdom of earth. And I want to highlight four responses I see in them that reflects the way of the world. Number one is that their response is man-centered. It's not God-centered. It's man-centered. They led Jesus away, verse 53, to the high priests and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. They're not focused on God. They're focused on man, on using their own resources, whatever they can muster together to accomplish what they think needs to happen, which is get rid of Jesus. Because he's messing with their world. And what's most important to them is that they, as men, keep in control. The way of the world is man-centered. So the resources, the methods, the goals are all man-centered, not God-centered. But you may say, yeah, but these are religious leaders. But you know, we as religious people can be very man-centered in how we live our lives. And unfortunately, too many Christians and too many churches depend on their own methods and resources, and it's all man-centered. We use business techniques. We don't rely on the power of the Spirit. It's, it's about what we can accomplish because it's about us. That's the way of the world. Number one, it's man-centered. Number two, the way of the world is 
depending on position and political power to get things done. Notice how they band together. Let's use our position as the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. We have positions of power and people should listen to us. And they gather together and they decide they're going to use their position of power to get rid of Jesus, to accomplish what they think needs to happen. But note that they had certain rules that they were required to follow in a trial. We have plenty of records of this. We know what their rules were as the Sanhedrin. Number one rule was that they could only meet during the daytime. You see, all these rules were designed to prevent some kind of trial where someone gets condemned without due process. So they were required to meet during the day. When are they meeting? At night. Number two rule is that they could only meet in the hall, which was open to everybody. Where are they meeting? The high priest's house. Third, their whole process is wrong because they were required, according to the law, to meet and deliberate for a day and not make a decision for at least day another day. So it took at least two days for a trial. Notice they do it all at once. Here are the political leaders being completely illegal and against their own laws and how they're condemning Jesus, but they don't care because it's all about using their power and their processes to accomplish what they think needs to happen. And that's the way of the world, brothers and sisters. That's <laughs> how the world works. We need to accomplish, be efficient, get done what we need to get done in whatever it takes. The means justifies the ends. That's the way of the world. And unfortunately, we Christians get in trouble when we take on the ways of the world and we think we can use political power, our own position, try to get people in leadership, Christians in leadership, a Christian president or whatever. And if we just had that, boy, we could really get things done. We're confused because that's the way of the world. That's not how the kingdom of God is grown. And it simply won't work. Third, the way of the world is based on lies, based on lies. Notice verse 56, 57. Many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony wasn't consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple, etc., etc. It's all about false testimony. They're gathering people. Now you say this and you say this, and let's make sure we lie and condemn him so that we can get our way. Notice that this is exactly against one of the Ten Commandments, their own Ten Commandments. Remember what's number nine say? Thou shalt not bear false witness. <laughs> and yet they're relying on that to condemn Jesus. They're breaking their own law. And it's all based on lies. The entire world system is based on lies, brothers and sisters. Don't be fooled into thinking that's truth out there. I'm, there's truth mixed in, but by and large, it's based on lies. And the beginning foundational lie that the world lives by is this. God doesn't exist. Or if he does, he's not really involved in our lives. So we are on our own to make life work. So the world founds its entire system on that lie. And everything that results from that is a lie. We all grow up believing that foundational lie until the Lord gets a hold of us and transforms our thinking. And the lies just build from there. 
lies like, and we could go on and on, but I'll just give you a few. The answer to human problems is more education. Haven't we all kind of thought that? That's the lie that's out there? If we just could educate more. That's a lie. We're sinners. We need to be saved by grace. We need redeeming by Jesus Christ. That's the only real answer to the human dilemma. But the lie is more education. Another lie, if we were just kinder to others, we could all get along. Another lie, we are not sinners. We are just victims of a poor upbringing, etc., etc. We're not responsible for ourselves. And the, and the lies just keep going and going. See, they just build, and the entire world system is based on lies. John Lennon wrote a song that was published in 1971 that I think was prophetic to our day because I think it speaks to our world. It speaks to the mindset of our world today. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Well, I think the world has joined in John Lennon's perspective. Oh, if we could just get rid of intolerance, people who believe things like religion that just divides people, if we could just get along, everything would be wonderful. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie that's doing great harm today. And it's at odds with our Christian faith. And the final characteristic of the world that I see in this passage is that it ultimately rejects Jesus. Verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priests and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together to condemn him. Verse 65, the end of this passage, some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Finally, what the world does is it rejects Jesus. Jesus said, though, if the world hates me, it will also hate you. The world rejects Jesus as Lord. It's fine with respecting Jesus. Jesus is a great man. He's a good moral teacher. John Lennon thought he was great. <laughs> Jesus is such a good guy, you know. He's a good... Example, but he's not God. And he's not Lord of heaven and earth. I mentioned a while back that I've been reading through the Quran, and it's very interesting to me to see Muhammad's perspective towards Jesus as he wrote around 600 AD. He's very complimentary of Jesus. He thinks Jesus is great. He thinks Jesus is a great prophet. But he repeats over and over, but Jesus is not the Son of God. And he was not crucified on the cross. You see, to Muhammad, Jesus 
could not be those things because if those things are true, Jesus is the Son of God and He died on the cross for our sins, then He demands my allegiance, my surrender to Him as Lord. And Muhammad was not about to do that. But Muhammad's perspective is exactly like the people around us, the world in which we live. It rejects Jesus, at least the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that Jesus says he is. Because they don't want to surrender to him. So those are some of the ways of the world. But what are the ways of Jesus as a witness, as an example to us of what a witness is to be? as we see him in this trial standing up as a witness to the kingdom of God. I want to highlight just three responses I see here. Number one, he does not defend himself. Jesus does not defend himself. Verse 58 and following. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Down in verse 65, again, he's beaten, he's spit on, and he does not defend himself. Now think about it. Jesus here is being lied about. He's being uh, misquoted He could have easily said, you know, I didn't say that. What you're claiming I said, (laughs) you guys have it all wrong. Let me tell you. Let me set the record straight. What I said was, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it again. Speaking of his own body. But they are entirely misquoting him. They're condemning him. They're speaking lies. But he does not defend himself. He does not say a word. He doesn't say, hey, don't you guys know who I am? (laughs) I'm Lord of the universe. I created you. What is this you're doing? No, but he doesn't. He does not defend himself. He does not say a word. And I believe the words that Mark uses here in this passage is he has in mind Isaiah, the servant songs from Isaiah, chapter fifty. And following, I just want to read two verses, Isaiah 50, verse 6, where it says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. This is a prophecy of Jesus. And Mark is emphasizing that this is how Jesus responded. He did not defend himself. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Mark makes very clear that Jesus' response as a witness here is not to defend himself. And I think we get into trouble as Christians when we feel this pressure to somehow defend ourselves before the world. We only do harm when we begin defending ourselves. We try to straighten out the world's wrong view of us. Wait a minute, that's not true. Or challenge their mistreatment of us or fight for our rights. When we do those things, we are not witnesses like Jesus. 
A witness like Jesus does not defend himself. Secondly, a witness like Jesus submits to suffering. Jesus here submits to suffering. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to be spit on and beaten and lied about and reviled and insulted. He's willing to suffer, even to die, to accomplish the Father's will. You see, a true witness of Jesus will flock in his footsteps and be willing to suffer as well, to be mistreated, to be insulted, even to be hated. Very striking to me that in verse 54 it says, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, sitting with the officers. And we're told in another gospel that he could see Jesus. Peter is watching as Jesus is a witness. Very interesting that in First Peter, later in his life, as Peter thought about this and thought about Jesus' response, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and following, listen to what he says about how we should be witnesses as he thought about what he watched that night. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, the Father. And the result was he bore our our sins in his body on the cross and became the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Because Jesus did not defend himself, because he was willing to suffer, He became our Redeemer. And brothers and sisters, when we submit to suffering and rejection and mistreatment in the world, rather than fighting and defending ourselves, it releases the power of God in this broken world. And it sets people free. When we fight and defend ourselves, resisting suffering, we become terrible witnesses. Not like Jesus. Third and Finally, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He submits to suffering. And finally, he simply speaks the truth about himself. Verse 61 and 62, as the high priest says, questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, I'm really struck here. They they keep trying to condemn him and get these liars to have a a story that fits together and they just can't do it. And finally, finally the high priest in frustration says, aren't you going to say anything, Jesus, to condemn yourself? (laughs) And Jesus says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's as if Jesus is saying, okay, you guys can't get your act together. I'll make it very clear what I need to say so that you will condemn me and I can go to the cross because that's what I'm called to. And what he says about himself is a quote of three major Old Testament passages that every Jew would know. The first one is Exodus 4, where, remember, Moses sees the burning bush and he's, and he's standing there and, and God says, you need to go rescue my people from Egypt. And he says, well, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am. Say that I am sent me in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Ego eimi, 
Those are the exact words Jesus uses here. Ego, eimi, I am. There could be no missing this for the Sanhedrin. Jesus is actually claiming to be Yahweh himself. (laughs) Then he quotes two other passages. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was clearly a messianic psalm where it talks about sitting at the right hand, God seating the Messiah at, the right hand, at his right hand and making him the king over all the earth and the high priest over all the earth and the judge over all the earth. It's a psalm that every Jew knew was messianic. Jesus says, that's me. And then he quotes Daniel chapter 7 which was clearly a messianic psalm about... And let me read it to you because I think it's a key passage for us understanding who Jesus was. And the Jews would know this passage referred to the Messiah. Daniel 7, verse 13. I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. What did Jesus always refer to himself as? The son of man. Directly from this passage. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is describing Jesus' ascension to heaven, to the very throne of God. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus makes it very clear. I am Yahweh. I am the Messiah. I am the prophesied one. O Sanhedrin. (laughs) It's an incredible confession of who he is. He is God. He is Lord of all. And Jesus simply just declares it. This is who I am. And I want you to note, you know, some people look at this and Jesus on trial and they kind of think, Oh, yeah, Jesus, he was he was a great man. And man, he could have accomplished so much, but he got arrested and kind of things fell apart. And he he ended up getting on the wrong side of the Sanhedrin and condemned by Pilate and ended up being crucified. What a sad story. Too bad it happened to him. But I want you to know, Jesus is in absolute control of everything that's going on. I mean, they can't even condemn him. And he has to make sure. He condemns himself so he can go to the cross, which was God's plan all along. He's absolutely in control. What I think this shows us is that our job as witnesses is to be like Jesus, to do the same, to simply speak the truth that we know, what we have seen and heard about Jesus. The disciples got this, by the way. (laughs) If you read through the book of Acts over and over again, As Peter teaches, you know, Peter, who denied Jesus, who didn't want to suffer. You read his his sermons in um, Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 5 and, you know, the different sermons. And you see over and over again, all this great stuff Jesus did. And we are witnesses and we are witnesses and we are witnesses. You see, the disciples very clearly saw themselves as witnesses, as their primary identity in a fallen world. And so should we, brothers and sisters. We are witnesses of what Jesus is and has done.
Now, I must say that sometimes we think, I've done this, witnessing is just trying to live a good life and, you know, wait for people to ask us questions. Now, we should be ready to give a defense to all who ask, but I think being a witness is far more than that. It's actively looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus. If you see a great movie you really like, do you kind of wait? And, well, if somebody asks me, I'll tell them about this movie. No, you're like, hey, you got to see this movie. <laughs> this was great. I have really bad arthritis in my thumbs. Many of you have similar things, but it got so bad that I could barely actually stand up and hold the Bible while I was teaching. And my doctor said, well, you know what? There's this natural anti-inflammatory, and it's just an herb, turmeric. Let's try it. It works for some people. Well, I started taking it about six months ago, and it's vastly improved my arthritis. So you know what? I look for opportunities to tell people. I say it may not help you, but if I get any hint that somebody's struggling with arthritis, I'm going to say, try turmeric. Just try it. (laughs) It works great for me. Well, has Jesus saved us? Has he given us new life? Has he given us hope? Has he transformed our lives? Has he forgiven us? Do we have life in him? Have we been joined to a community of believers? And has he done all this incredible stuff for us? Well, then we got to tell somebody. (laughs) We need to be witnesses and look for every opportunity. I'm not talking about necessarily preaching on street corners. Some of us may be called to that, but I'm talking about engaging in relationship with unbelievers either in our families, our communities, wherever we can, and looking for every opportunity to talk about Jesus. This is convicting for me. I'm not very good at this, I will admit. Are we truly witnesses? Am I truly a witness, or am I just selfishly playing it safe? How should we live in a hostile world? Well, there's a key word that Jesus uses that the disciples picked up that gave them a clear picture of how they were to live in a hostile world, and that word is witness. But again, it's not so much about standing on street corners or knocking on doors and witnessing, though God may call us at times to do that. But it's about living our lives in Christ building relationships with unbelievers, and looking for every opportunity to talk about Jesus. They may not receive it. Many won't. That's okay. Our job is not to convert people. Our job is to be witnesses of what we have seen and experienced, to talk about how great He is. He is Lord. He loves you. You can trust him. He died for your sin. He has conquered death. I want to end by reading a few verses from the book of 2 Timothy. As Paul is about to go to the cross. He knows he's dying, and he writes his letter to Timothy as his final charge to him, and he says this, and it's a charge that we all need to hear. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony, the witness, the truth, the martus of our Lord or of me as prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. 
Now you'll notice Paul just goes off on the gospel here because he just can't hold it in. According to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's our charge. To be witnesses, to simply not be ashamed, but proclaim the truth to a world that desperately needs to hear the truth. And yes, they may reject it. But our primary relationship with the world is to be witnesses like Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage that really does open our eyes to what you've called us to. This world is uncomfortable. We can't find our chairs. We don't know how we fit. But as you make clear in your word, we aren't supposed to fit. We are simply to proclaim, to be witnesses, to tell how great you are. May we be your witnesses that you might get all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.